0: This is not the media This is hell and again Today you know this is not the media Because we are not talking about an attempted coup That took place in Sudan on October 25th of this year We're talking about a military coup led by General Abdel Fattah al-Baran That was very successful on October 25th Overthrowing the transitional government Led by Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak Hamdak himself was installed as Prime Minister of the Transitional Government in Sudan following negotiations with the military, following their military coup in 2019 that overthrew Prime Minister Omar al-Bashir. But why overthrow Hamdok when, as our guest today points out, General al-Baran praised Hamdok for his so-called economic reforms of austerity, as prescribed by the International Monetary Fund, that included the abolition of fuel subsidies, the severe downscaling of subsidies for wheat, Electricity and medicines, the abolition of multiple exchange rates for the US dollar, and the floating of Sudanese currency. And why overthrow al Bashir, who took power in a military coup himself and was doing everything he could to cozy up to the United States, which again suits the interests of the military? And what of the protests that led to the coup, that led to al Bashir taking power? Then almost toppled al-Bashir in 2013 and fueled his downfall in 2019. What is the state of Sudan's protest movement now and what do these coups reveal about the divisions within Sudan between urban professionals and the rural poor? We will do our best to have a better understanding of what is actually taking place in Sudan in a few minutes when we speak with Magdi el Jazuli. Who wrote the Spectre Journal article Counter-Revolution in Sudan A a History of Military Coups And Mass Struggle Shireen Akram Boshar solicited And contributed to the article She is a socialist activist and writer Who focuses on revolution and anti-imperialism In the Middle East and North Africa Magdi, our guest today, is a scholar of the of Sudan and a fellow of the Rift Valley Institute, a non organization working in eastern and central Africa to bring local knowledge to bear on political and economic development. He's currently working on a joint book project with Edward Thomas, dealing with market authoritarianism and political Islam in Sudan, which sounds absolutely fascinating. Magdi and Thomas also currently have an article at African Arguments titled... Creatures of the Deposed, Connecting Sudan's Rural and Urban Struggles. Magdi writes on Sudanese affair, affairs on his blog, stillsudan.blogspot.com. You can follow the Rift Valley Institute on Twitter at RVI news, And you can find out more about the Rift Valley Institute at their website, riftvalley.net. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap Tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Thursday, and producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, this is your final shore as a board operator here on "This Is Hell." Can you tell us why you are leaving? Where you get found an actual full time job? Because that's pretty difficult to find nowadays. Please tell me you are not working at Walmart for eighteen dollars an hour.
1: I am not, but I am not working for much more <laughs> money <laughs> per hour. Um, no, I am. I am going to be starting uh, work at a high school. I am going to be like counseling. Um, uh, like college and career stuff. Um, oh, no kidding! Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that'll it'll be good. That's not you know the dream or anything, but it's uh, um, I'm looking forward to it. And sure, I mean, I'm, bu- I'm bummed I'm I'm gonna I uh, have to stop doing this, but
0: uh, but that's really cool being a, co- a student counselor. I never saw my student counselor until one month before I graduated. He'd never spoken to me the whole time, and he said, "So, what are you gonna do with your life?" Now, that's some school counseling right there. And I said, I have no idea, but had I had a conversation with you earlier, maybe I could have figured that out. Do you want to tell us what school you're going to be working at, or do you want not want to share that?
1: Maybe I shouldn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is, is it Bowen? No. All right, all right. Just wanted to take a real quick guess, that's all. So with my realization that the holidays are upon us, came the acknowledgement that yet again I... May not be able to celebrate the holidays this year just like last year due to the pandemic. With my family, we usually celebrate the holidays three or four times with different branches of our family. But visiting several groups of people who may all be thoroughly vaccinated is still probably not a safe practice, especially with the new Omicron or Omicron or Omicron variant, which may include many variants. Which means if we are celebrating the holidays this year, and that still is a big if, we have to decide who we can celebrate with and who we cannot in order to limit the potential for any transmission of the virus, especially to other family members. But then there's the matter of, should we be celebrating at all, considering the fact that the world is still ravaged by a deadly pandemic? I mean, sure, We'll be sending gifts all over the place And yes, we'll be connecting via Zoom But actually physically getting together in the same space With the usual crowd of about 20 relatives Is growing increasingly more unlikely every day As we approach the holidays And the pandemic and the virus Has a resurgence But more important than my deliberations Over the appropriateness of celebrating during a pandemic Jess, what is this week's question from hell?
1: This week's question from hell is... What is the best thing you've ever found lying on the street?
0: Are you uh, ready, will you be ready by the end of the show to answer that question from hell for yourself? <laughs> I'll think about it. All right, think about it then. It took me a while to figure it out today. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirts, tote bags, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guided the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the Rutgers cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely and thoroughly listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to those of you who have recently supported This Is Hell and likely picked up some holiday gifts. After all, what says the holidays more than giving a gift that states this is is hell. Thanks to Kenzie of Albany Township in Maine for getting a trucker's cap. Thanks to the amazingly talented Christian in Rochester, Minnesota for picking up both a coffee mug and a t-shirt. Man, I would love to go to his art studio someday. And thanks to Sandra in Dallas, Texas, who also got a This Is Hell t-shirt. Thanks, Kenzie, Christian, and Sandra, we truly appreciate your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash This is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at chuck@thisishell.com. At but we must have your answer by the end of today's Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff has a theory about drunk cave people. I'm very curious as to what that means. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Magdi El jazouli on counter revolution in Sudan. Again, the question from hell is what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you ever found lying? on the street. I think there's an Oscar Wilde quote about lying in a gutter and something that he found there. Now I can't remember it. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess has done and Richard and Alex continue to do, email me at, chuck at this is hell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuckatthisishell.com We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon with shows beginning weekdays at 10 a.m. We're very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you want to start your own podcast in a soundproof studio or are a musician who wants to work on your music or are working on any kind of sound project, you could by becoming a staff member here on This Is Hell. This position does come with a living wage. What do we mean by that? Your board operator shift is two hours at most, and for those two hours, you will receive a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at com. If you are interested in working on the show, or you have a guest or topic suggestion, or just have some thoughts you want to share about the show, email us again at com, and we'll likely... Read your email on air As we are doing right now With an email from listener Alan Who wrote earlier this week Hey Chuck, I've been listening to This is Hell for about a year And I really appreciate the wonderful content you put out I also appreciate that you're Chicago local I wanted to reach out about a story You might be interested in regarding A coffee workers union effort You might be aware that Collectivo Collectivo coffee employees have been fighting to unionize for over a year. The company is based in the Midwest and totes itself to be community-oriented, but has employed a union-busting firm at great cost, only to fail when the employees voted to unionize and then continue to resist the union effort. Now, Collectiva continues to resist the union effort. Most recently, they've appealed the union certification as a tactic to starve employees out by prolonging the process yet again. The owners have vowed to their employees and customers that they would bargain in good faith, but they have done nothing but hamper the unionizing process. I've no doubt your listeners would be interested in hearing about this pro-union Chicago local story if this sounds like something you'd be interested in hearing more about, uh, please feel free to email me or get back or give me a phone call. So thanks, Alan, for the tip. I really appreciate it. Apparently, Collectivo Coffee is not all that, let's say, Collectivo. The Collectivo name is just a brand name and nothing else. It means nothing other than the owners are willing to co opt the idea of collectivism in order to rake in profits, but unwilling to act in any collective way. Now, if I was walking down the street and I saw Collectivo Coffee, I would far more likely get coffee there than I would at any of the huge coffee chains because I would think I was contributing to a cause that puts their workers, and by extension their customers, first. But judging by their anti-union ways, I would be wrong. Here's the thing about Collectivo Coffee. They have two locations in Chicago, one in Tony, uber-wealthy, Lincoln Park, and another in just recently wealthy, Andersonville. They also have another store right across the border of Chicago in one of Evanston's nicest retail areas on Church. In other words... These are all very liberal or progressive parts of the Chicago area, areas where I cannot afford to live, which means in order to afford these buildings, either through renting or owning, Collectivo must be making real good money. In fact, there are 20 Collectivo coffee locations, with the rest being in the Milwaukee and Madison areas. Again, relatively liberal and progressive towns, and I bet they get a lot of business because customers think they're practicing collectivism in some way, and not, as Alan suggests, union-busting. Alan, yes, please tell us more But bigger picture Just because some business Has collectivo or revolution Or some word in its name That suggests they are in fact About collectivism or workers Or contributing to a revolution That doesn't mean they actually are So next time you choose to stop somewhere Based on their name Implying they're about helping workers and the working class Doesn't mean they are It could all be a marketing scam Exploiting your sympathies For the working class if you have anything you want to share, like Alan's tip on Collectivo Coffee not being so Collectivo at all, email us at, at com. We are also asking every one of you to send in your favorite episodes or interviews you've heard on This Is Hell this year. During the first or the final two weeks of 2020, 2021, I should say, during the final two weeks of this year, 2021, But it's really hard to. Tell when years stop and start And stop and start and start and end Nowadays. During the final two weeks of 2021 We will be playing your ten favorite Shows or interviews and we want to hear From you what your favorites were And if we play your suggestion we'll personally Thank you on air Coming up, why has Sudan Had military coup after Military coup? We'll also Tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast which you can subscribe to At patreon.com Slash, this is hell. We'll have some more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? And I saw a disturbing story on local TV news here in Chicago about homicides. But the thing is, while the anchors were using their upset voices and looks, they're really good actors, they didn't really grasp how upsetting the news was. Trying to obfuscate it behind percentages without considering what the story really means in whole numbers live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people this is hell back on October 25th Sudan's military overthrew a transitional government in a coup a transitional government that was the result of a coup in 2019 a coup that followed protests against the government of Prime Minister Omar al bashir who himself took power back in 1989 And yet another military coup. So why is recent Sudanese history filled with military coups and what has caused this repeated overthrows of Sudanese governments? Here to help us have a better understanding of what is actually taking place in Sudan. It is our honor and pleasure to have Magdi El Jazuli, who wrote the Spectre Journal article counter-revolution in Sudan, a history of military coups and mass struggle as a guest on our show this morning again Magdi is a scholar of Sudan and a fellow at the Rift Valley Institute Magdi writes on Sudanese affairs at his blog stillsudan.blogspot.com follow the Rift Valley Institute on Twitter at rvi news and find out more about the Rift Valley Institute at their website riftvalley.net welcome to This is Hell Magdi
2: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, this your article is amazing, and and obviously you must be aware that here in the United States, unfortunately, we don't do not talk enough about Sudanese politics and the impact that the U.S. and the West has on Sudan. Your article was posted on November seventh, and a lot has happened in Sudan since then. However, back in early uh, November, you wrote some are calling what took place on october 25th a coup attempt but i would call a spade a spade this was and is a military coup not a coup attempt one reason for the confusion is probably that it is a coup designed and executed by the army leadership rather than a scheming cohort of disgruntled officers of petty bourgeois character operating in defiance of the chain of command in alliance with their peers in the civilian realm university graduates and professionals in this regard It falls in the first of these two categories of coups in Sudan's modern history, namely the coup of the commander-in-chief. Why is it so important for the outside world to recognize what happened on October 25th was a military coup by the commander-in-chief and not an attempted coup?
2: Well, that's a very good question. Thank you for asking it. I think the first person who needs to be a bit educated about this is Anthony Blinker, because he came up with the idea that this is an attempted coup, and this is a coup attempt. And then the U.S. Um, State Department began using the word "military takeover," and I think uh, the problem is that this, the terminology they use, has some legal implications. So the way politics in in, the, in this age works is that you name things differently. There's a lot of politics around naming. So once you say military coup, there are certain implications, apparently also in the US legal system, which I'm not aware of in detail, but some of them involve um, the US's formal commitment to democracy and obligations around um, whether they need to enforce certain sanctions on whoever attempted a coup or whoever carried out a coup. And once they use the word military takeover, for instance, these terms do not apply. And that's why the famous coup of June uh, 2013 by uh, another general in Egypt, um, uh, the namesake of uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, Egypt's ruler, um, that move wasn't officially named a coup either. It was named... um, interestingly, uh, also some form of corrective revolution. So I think the term, the, the use in the terminology, is part of the propaganda battle around what defines democracy and 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 for a democracy for whom, if you like, who who gets to eat off democracy, and in in the mind of most Western diplomats and Western nations, including the US they would prefer the diagnosis coup attempt and military takeover or military intervention into politics and avoid the terminology of coup because that would have implications for their own internal policies. And uh, when they present their version of events to their own audience, so they they prefer to talk about military interventions and coup attempts, which will smoothen their way to normalising the coup as a some sort of inevitable political development in a rough neighborhood.
0: So that's, that, that's a very subtle distinction, and I don't think that the general public here in the United States understands that distinction. How well is that distinction understood by the people, say, in Sudan who are, under, who are witnessing the outcomes of this terminology?
2: Yes, that's, that's that's an important one. The people in Sudan are quite aware of what these what the, of the distinctions between these categories, and when that's why they insist in their daily propaganda. Like the people who are resisting the coup and organizing protests on a regular basis, insist on doing. Exactly what I try to do in that article is to name a spade a spade. So they avoid using any other terminology and, uh, and insist on naming it a coup because essentially that's what it is. And part of politics is to say the truth. And um, uh, at least part of um, politics that deserves a name is to, to, to sort of utter that truth out. And because of the implications that means for legitimacy, and um, uh, because what most of these protests are doing, apart, of course, from keeping soldiers very, very busy all the time, is withdrawing consent from a government that cannot rule by pure force. Um, of course, you can go some way by by pure, by by pure force, but at some point you need to gather some level of consent to be able to govern efficiently. And the way the protest movement in Sudan has been evolving Although the numbers, people are debating, well, how many are they? How many people are on the street? Do they represent popular opinion? Don't they represent popular opinion? So there's, these, there's this logic of numbers now being entertained. But whatever the case, there is a good chunk of the young population uh, of, of the capital and other major cities in Sudan um, who are politically active, who has, have been drawn into the world of politics thanks to the developments Incidents since 2018, 19, and who are making uh, withdrawing consent from a government that is by all means a, a coup government, a military government, a government um, that is is designed to generate a dictatorship of one form or another, despite the fact that. Uh, uh, and uh, a celebrated politician has come back to lead its uh, cabinet uh, its cabinet in the name of the military
0: so we, uh, on the uh, october 25th coup you write <clears throat> the parallel here is with the November n- 1958 coup of General Ibrahim Aboud, who assumed power at a moment of fracture in the ruling bloc, and who was actually invited by the sitting prime minister at the time, Abdallah Khalil, uh, himself a former officer, to take power, sil- silence the bickering political parties and enforce a singular leadership on the ruling bloc. Why did the military have to silence the bickering political parties? How often have military coups been about? Silencing bickering parties because I'm wondering if is the military impatient when it comes to political solutions or are partisan political politics dysfunctional to the point of maybe even needing the military to impose political stability.
2: That's again a wonderful question. I mean, in, this in his context, I, the Sudanese context, and in many other contexts too, the problem is uh, which you don't meet in in a two party system like the U.S. is that the interests of the ruling class are consolidated enough so that a transition from one party to another doesn't really threaten those interests. They will be passed through anyway. And um, Sudan attempted something similar through a sectarian model of government where two major parties were involved. But unlike the Democrats and the Republicans in the U.S., and unlike at least for a good chunk of U.K. history, recent history the the Tories and and, and Labour at least since the, the the beginning of the Thatcher era these two parties which in, in both cases the US and the UK case there has been some level what now many European parties called the perfect middle So there a middle ground emerged where you can't really make a a clear distinction in effect between right and left and 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 where the middle ground is muddled by uh, some sort of rational consensus which is supposed to be inevitable uh, supposed to be the there is no alternative area of politics like the thatcherite tia region of politics which is this expanding middle now um many uh, Democracies struggling to become democracies in the European sense, like the Sudanese one in the 50s, um, failed to generate that middling ground. It didn't work um, because the politicians were not in a position to clarify their, the political interests of the ruling class and they didn't mature in their own consciousness as a class to define what these interests were. And, and this meant threatening the rule of that class. And that class doesn't involve the politicians, doesn't include the politicians alone. The politicians are only representatives, but it includes the, biz- the interests, uh, bills on the interest of commerce and, and mm-hmm. big capital. And in Sudan, that was agricultural capital mainly. There were people who were responsible for um, drawing out the surplus from rural Sudan and who operated in an area of mercantile capital and agricultural capital these that was the sort of the the bedrock of the ruling class its representatives in government however were not capable of doing that representation well enough because they were they were they were occupied by too much bickering as i tried to write and um, and the role of the military was essentially to secure those interests by silencing these incapable politicians and it is very telling in the case of the 1958 coup that that that, that shot a sigh of remorse and disappointment came from inside the political establishment it was Abdullah Khalil, was himself the prime minister, saying, oh, this is not really working. We need a strong man to put this together, and this can only happen with the assistance of the army. And this was just two years into independence. And uh, in a position where Sudan Sudan government wasn't facing as much problems as it is facing today, I mean, it had a balance of payment issue, and it had a sort of a foreign affairs problem with with Egypt. And, And these two issues were... Proved enough a challenge to 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 bring down the rule of the parties and transfer power to the military.
0: At the beginning of Sudanese independence, uh, you point out how in June 1956, again, prior uh, two years prior to the 1958 coup, Sudan's government budget depended on a singular export item: cotton grown in the vast. Owned, or sorry, vast state-owned Jazeera scheme between the two Niles. Cotton returns were threatened by an increasingly radicalizing movement of tenants in Jazeera who were demanding a greater share of profits and reworking of production relations. A union of Jazeera tenants came into being in 1953 with the assistance of the communist anti-imperialist front, which subsequently developed into the Communist Party. Thousands of Jazeera tenants marched to the capital Khartoum in December of 1953, And occupied a major square in the city demanding recognition of their newly born union by the transitional self-government under British colonial yoke, a prescient form of Occupy in distant and dusty Sudan, which is fascinating because so many people think that Occupy is something that was developed either here in the United States or in Britain, or even you can go to the M15 movement when you look in Spain. How often have military coups in Sudan been about avoiding even stopping a rise in either communist or socialist organizing within Sudan?
2: Well, that was essentially the... the, the the case in at least two of these coups. I mean, Abu's coup was, was partially about stopping that tide of radicalism in Sudan. And then Nimeri's coup in 1969 began as an alliance with the left and uh, within two years, it turned into a pogrom of the left. Um, so the military began sort of scheming offices as I tried to name them from the middle ranks uh, began in alliance with leftist politicians. Uh, they thought they could ride that wave. But once um, the left insisted on its independence from military decision-making, the type of thing that Hamdog, for instance, the current prime minister, couldn't resist, um, the response from the side of the military was a crackdown. And uh, this cost um, Sudan's leftist movement, some of its most brilliant politicians and thinkers in 1971. So very often coups are about that, that story of stemming in a radical wave. Even the Islamist coup of 1989 was partially about that. Because at the time, maybe the, the form of radicalization wasn't any more. Uh, leftist politics as understood in the 1960s, but in many instances it was also about um, improving the lot of rural producers. And it took the form of ethnic politics in Western Sudan or in Eastern Sudan, and of course primarily in in the long war of Southern Sudan, and um, in the 1990s, the language was an ethnic language. It was more about ethnicity. But the, the, the root problem is the problem I tried to describe in this article, um, that um, a bloated consumer, consumer city was drawing surplus from a, a, a battered and, and, and uh, weapons-heavy countryside. And this has been the case... For most of sudan's sort of modern history and this type of imbalance this sort of uneven and unbalanced development if you like is in my mind the political economic basis the materialist basis of the type of struggles that are playing out in sudan today
0: so in if this is in any way a misleading question please tell me but so uh has sudan experienced military coups because of this urban-rural divide? Is it because of class divides or have military coups been in response to political stability, bickering, or in response to economic instability? What is the leading role? What is the leading cause for these coups? Or is it all of those things at the same time?
2: Well, I think because keeping a system where rural production, where urban well-being depends on a highly extractive system of rural production is not an easy task. And to do that, you need a lot of oppression. Well, once that, this, the ideological systems of oppression fail, you need to use coercion. And military coups in Sudan happen often at moments of crisis where you need to coerce producers more aggressively into keeping that system working. I hope that answers your question.
0: No, it does, it does. Uh, the other thing I, was, I kept wondering is How big of a role Relations with the West Including the U.S. Are at the heart Of these military coups Because you point out Part of Abdallah Khalil's uh, Response to these crises Was orientation of Sudan's Foreign policy firmly Towards the capitalist West Including overtures to Israel Abdallah Khalil approached The U.S. government In February 1957 Asking for economic aid And military armament Sudan's communist Anti-imperialist front Outside parliament And the National Unionist Party The opposition in parliament Launched a fierce campaign against the proposed U.S. aid. So since the 50s, our relations with the West, including the U.S., at the heart of the coups in Sudan.
2: Very much so. It is the ambition of any, not any, but it is the ambition of the Sudanese military, at least, and, and many other militaries in the region, um, to nurture these types of relationships with the West. They're quite aware that if you if you can acquire Western weaponry in sufficient amounts, your ability to suppress internal dissent um, will be amplified greatly. And take Egypt as an example. I mean, the U.S. government has been keeping the, uh, the Egyptian sort of state since the improvement, of really, since the signing of the Camp David Accords back in the 70s, was it, um, on a continuous sort of uh, milk bottle supply of weapons um, that gave this government an impressive uh, technical advantage over any dissenters. Um, the the Sudanese can go on the streets at relatively low cost. The killing rate is nowhere to, compare, to be compared with the Egyptian killing rate If you go on the street. Um, and uh, just remember the events of 2011 and the, the number of those killed on the streets of Cairo, when the Egyptian revolution was, to my mind, the beginning of this sequence of protest movements and, and democratic movements in the region, the mother of all revolutions, for in our age, in my eyes, is the Egyptian revolution, certainly, um, how high that cost was. And you named Abdullah Khalil, but it wasn't only Abdullah Khalil. I mean, Abdullah Khalil um, wanted uh, American money, and interestingly, he didn't really know how to spend it. And one reason the Americans were a bit cautious is that Abdullah Khalil failed to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> how he wanted to spend that money exactly, so how much money would go into weapons, how much. But he said he wanted to a small, effective fighting force, and he wanted improved uh, agricultural technology. But when it came to details, it was, it, there wasn't a lot of detail to support that. Um, when General Abu took over power in 1958, one of the first things he did is to complete negotiations of the uh, what at the time was called USAID, and um, and get some U.S. cash. Indeed, he did get some U.S. cash. Another general in, in the 70s, General Nimeri, the, the, the leader of the pogroms against Sudan's um, uh, historical leadership of the Communist Party, um, when he turned To the right in 1971, the first thing he did was negotiate arms, improved arms relationships with the U.S. And indeed, Sudan for a long time during the 70s, and that's probably the golden period that most of these officers look back to with awe and appreciation when Sudan had fabulously cooperative relations with the, with the U.S. military and enjoyed probably Sudan was one of the largest recipients of U.S. military aid south of the Sahara in the 70s and, and contributed to uh, sort of uh, military operations in the Red Sea and, and joined military operations with the U.S. military and the Egyptian military at the time they were called Operation Bright Star. And I think they still continue regularly. But uh, not anymore with the contribution of the Sudanese. Uh, uh, through most of this the late 70s and 80s, and throughout uh, the early 80s, Sudan was a, a, a close partner to the U.S. military and and relied heavily on U.S. armament and weapons. And that was a time where most of these officers, that most of these officers considers uh, to be sort of the golden age of um, of their involvement in. in uh, in the military, in the army, and they look at this with appreciation. They do want to go back to a time where you can rely on CIA and FBI and Western intelligence to suppress your own dissenters and where you can rely on Western technology to, to, to organize coercive power in your own capital. And that's one reason why um, Burhan and others raced to improve relations with Israel, rightly after the deposition of, uh, of Bashir, and one of the first things that Burhan did in 2019 was reach out to the to the Israeli leadership and reach out to the Americans and say, we're willing to go in that direction. Indeed, Sudan signed the Abraham Accords, uh, walked out of the long record of resistance to Israel. Even if it's passive resistance, it was at least um, some form of pro-Palestine position for most of its history, he walked out of that position to a um, an, uh, a brazenly pro-Israeli um, position today, and it's part of an, an architecture of regional security that is that is built around Israel's security. And uh, I think this is the way of Sudan's military to market itself as a, a necessary component of the regional security architecture.
0: And you point out that General Abdel Fattah El Baran. He might well have considered Abood's precedent in his remarks on October 25th of this year announcing his centralization of authority. He mentioned that he had offered the transitional. Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak, the opportunity to work together with him and facilitate a smoother con- consolidation of power. He was, however, acutely aware of another commander-in-chief's coup in Sudan's modern history, the April 6, 1985 palace coup of General Abd al-Rahman Suwar al Dabab, that deposed General Numeri and mentioned the precedent as a model to pursue democratization. So to what extent is al invitation to Hamdak? a democratization of a military coup or to give an appearance of democratization is this an attempt to transition from the coup or merely to give the impression that is not it is not a military coup
2: i think that's consolidation of the coup it's not moving away from it it's the consolidation of this new relationship however now um, he indeed has veto power over decisions of the cabinet which makes it the veto coup, and of course Um, he has um, expelled a good chunk of the of the political parties that were part of the transitional arrangement which makes a unifying of the ruling bloc and uh, indeed he has uh, oriented certain certain questions of policy decisions are now squarely in the hands of the military without any discussion and um, and hamdok is ready to work with him the transitional prime minister and and i think that expectation eventually played out he was he came back uh, a few days ago uh, and was restored to his position as the head of the uh, cabinet under military oversight uh, which means consolidation rather than reversal so i think what now western diplomats and uh, some and of course uh, Western politicians with interest in the region, including the, the U.S. State Department, is saying about democratization is complete nonsense. And uh, most, the most naive political activists in Sudan, with some sense of where things should, in which direction things should should go, and the people protesting on the street today are saying exactly this is not working and that's not. That's not what we aspire to and we don't want to be ruled by by a dictator.
0: So is Sudan, and if I'm oversimplifying again, correct me, is Sudan's history then popular uprisings leading to military coups which take power and the uprising and then give that power to someone who is ostensibly democratically elected? Is mass struggle crushed by coups in force and then Sudan transitions back to what its military and the U.S considers democracy? And has that been happening since the beginning of Sudanese independence?
2: Yes, I mean, that's quite a good part of the cycle of uh, political struggles in Sudan goes around that. Of course, um, what gets unmentioned in in these cycles is the bit of detail that I tried to bring about economic crisis and their recurrence, and how struggles in the urban sphere and the rural sphere lie at the heart of that problem. And some of Sudan's most brilliant Marxists, like the late Abdel Halik, we're quite aware Abdel Halik Mahyub is his name, is the former secretary of Sudan's small communist party, uh, and was uh, was was uh, executed in 1971 uh, at the age. Well, he was of around my age at the time, at, at the age of 44 or something, and um, um, at, uh, even in the 60s, because of these cyclical. Changes. There was acute awareness in some circles of Sudan's left that the problem is broader than dictatorship-democracy. The bro- the problem is lies in the political economy of the country and in the way rural production is organised and the way extraction of surplus is organised, which makes militarization a necessity. And uh, in in the eyes of the ruling class, I mean, um, from the purpo- from the from the position of a ruler, you need um, coercion to extract that level of surplus from a hyper-exploited peasantry, and without force, that will, won't happen. This, in most times, often involves even wars and famines. And Sudan is also a place of, for manufactured famines, famines that are made to um, to rip. Uh, assets of people and to push them into market systems, force them into selling their labor or force them into selling their meager assets, their cows, their sheep, force them into market relationships uh, where they weren't part of market relationships. And you can see that in Sudan's peripheral wars. One of those peripheral wars became quite famous in the U.S., the the war in there for reasons intrinsic to sort of in U.S., uh, local U.S. politics, but anyway, so that, that war became part of sort of U.S. public life, if I understood right, and um, and uh, because at one point in time, people began talking about genocide and that word, so it became an issue, and 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 that's a very good example. The, the, the long war in that force since 2003 is a good example of how uh, how the coercive apparatus forces people into the market over a course of 10 years the war has created thousands of internally displaced people who eventually became surplus labor force um, at a very cheap price um, and who became migrants so they began moving from internal displacement camps to zones of agricultural production into central sudan and uh, c- sort of continue to supply these zones with very cheap labor. So you see there the benefits of war in creating um, in freeing people from land, if you like, and creating a free workforce. It's nominally free, but uh, which is forced to sell its labor at a very low price. Um, so these, these processes play out over um, uh, alongside this Uh, alternation of democracy and dictatorship, uh, whatever it is. And uh, the the democracy comes at a moment where the popular movement is capable of resisting these tenors and um, dictatorship comes when it is necessary to uh, expand extraction or intensify extraction because of a a crisis in in the balance of payments.
0: You also point out that it took two years of cohabitation between the military and the Forces of Freedom and Change Alliance to clarify its form. Now, these were the two years of Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdak, who was appointed, not elected, through negotiations with the Transitional Military Council. And you continue. The interlude was the army's defensive posture toward the broad revolutionary movement of 2018 2019 until it was in a position to go on the offensive. In that sense, albarran's October 25th. 2020, 2021 coup qualifies as a restoration. How can a coup also be a restoration?
2: Because he wants to restore the in a way he wants to restore the status quo ante, which means he wanted to restore the state of affairs before the revolution of 2018-19 to restore the relationships the relationships, the, the, the relationships of power, that prevailed in Sudan even before Bashir was deposed. He wanted to bring back, he might not bring back the the same Islamists who allied with Bashir, but in terms of social forces, he wants to bring these forces back into the fall back into the foreground of power. He wants to secure the interests of business, the interests of the of merchant capital, which is sort of the bigger chunk of Sudan's capital interests. He wants to secure the interests of the the exporters at the expense of the labor force uh, and the interests of these military entrepreneurs, this large militia that now dominates Sudan's politics um, over the interests of the popular movement. And he also wants to restore patrician power, which was very much sort of challenged and threatened during the events of 1819. People mocked uh, uh, the 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 patriarchal mores and values of the old days, and and these young men, women and men were exploring and investigating ways to live their life out beyond the the restrictions of these patriarchal mores. Sudan's revolutionary events of eighteen nineteen were not only about politics; it was also about um, a social life and social relations and relationships between men and women. So, in that sense, there was something truly revolutionary about it. It was also about challenging religious authorities and clerical authorities, um, and, and challenging the, the authority of older people, which is quite a, a strong factor in Sudan's public and private life. This the fact that you always have to defer to the, to the older generation. So, you see all these. Um, these bold women and men, most of them very young, who are trying to reorder relationships in their public life, but also in their private life. They were carrying the authority of their parents, in a way. And that's why in another piece I described the, um, the major sitting camp around the army headquarters in the uh, during the, the events of 1819, that it had some... Um, a a woodstock touch to it there was something about a new youth culture in it and uh, i think that's an element of sudan's developments that one should celebrate and it would tell you that it is deep reaching uh, despite the fact that at the political scale now this is in a way a restoration and Burhan and his allies have the upper hand um, um, for the moment they can neither demographically nor socially uh, uh no nor culturally defeat this wave um that is developing and has been developing and maturing in in Sudan on the long run um they will die, and it is these young kids who will survive
0: so uh, when considering the uprising of two thousand and eighteen two thousand and nineteen to what extent do the interests of the Sudanese military Line up with the interests of the West, globalization and international groups like the International Monetary uh, Fund and World Bank. Does the military represent the interests of financialization, globalization and the West? And if so, are the protests in Sudan that are happening right now uh, against neoliberalism and globalization or is that just one part of the protests as you were just pointing out?
2: the military certainly does align with the with the interests of financial powerhouses and that's where it sees itself and it took the the recipe of these international financial institutions as a way of reordering its own internal politics and and marketed that prescription as uh, in a Thatcherite way as the only alternative the only way possible whether the protest movement understands itself as an anti-new, uh, the movement against neoliberalism, I'm not very sure about that. I think there, is, there are divergences of opinion in, in, about that. Um, probably, as far as I can judge, there is a radical current in that movement that does indeed understand itself as opposed to uh, the, the new liberal order um and and looks towards developing that position and articulating it better. But there's a good chunk of these protesters who probably might not consider themselves, do not understand themselves as as, uh, as such, and might even be enticed to look at, at that model as something to pursue. Um, so um, I wouldn't if I wouldn't, it would be claiming too much to, de- to define that as such, and I think that was that's part of the contradiction of this movement, and you can see that in the events of 2018, 19 themselves, because it was the cabinet of Prime Minister Hamdok himself, the first cabinet. I mean, not the, not the, not Hamdok two, Hamdok one, the first cabinet that enforced exactly these measures, and one of the advantages of that cabinet for the military that was it was in a position because it had sufficient political capital um, among the young public, um, it was in a position to market those, those measures as urgently needed measures that had no alternative. So it was Hamdogan, his first cabinet who passed uh, a battery of neoliberal interventions in Sudan's economy over the past two years with the argument that there is no there is no other way forward. That's the only option we're going to get out of the the depth of our economic crisis. Um, Of course, as many of you would probably expect, the the crisis only got deeper. So I'm aware that he eventually managed to resolve that problem. Um, uh, Exactly the opposite. Um, Sudan suffers a a continuous problem of of hunger in the countryside um, since 2019, and it, it is taking it Uh, very painful forms with increasing death rates and one of the highest malnutrition rates in the world in children under five years of age. Mm.
0: So what happens here in the United States when we view any kind of famine or starvation that's happening in Sudan as either due to Uh, poor management of the agricultural sector or caused by the climate or caused by weather and not seeing the role that market relationships play in famine? What happens to our understanding of famine when we erase and make market relationships role in causing famines invisible?
2: Well, I think you misunderstand most of the world's famines then, Um, simply. I mean, Sudan's Food deficit, current food deficit or current famine situation, at least in some parts of of the country, uh, including also in urban centers, has nothing to do with productivity or with production of cereals. Sudan's production of cereals in 2018 and 19 was impressively high. It produced uh, more than it needed. So there was, at least in the, the, the types of cereals consumed in the countryside, Sudan Sudan's countryside eats sorghum and, and millet. Um, Sudan's cities eat wheat. Uh, most of the wheat is imported from the West, and that's how you keep the, the city satisfied. But the countryside relies on sorghum and millet grown uh, in its own backyard, if you like. This system of production has been highly mechanized and has been geared towards export, which means that the same produces the people who produce the sorghum, Cannot afford to buy it back once it enters the market. Um, so they produce for for farm owners and capitalist entrepreneurs and and uh, and investors who turn that into a commodity on the market at a very high price, which the same people who produced it cannot afford it. And most of the hunger is happening exactly in the places that do most of the production. Uh, uh, and the problem is you very neatly said, is, is market relations is not, it's not, it's not um, the amount produced. So it is hunger in plenty, if you like.
0: So you also point out that Hamdok's uh, cabinet managed to normalize relations with the United States. Washington struck Sudan from its list of state sponsors of terrorism and lifted long-term sanctions in return for Sudan's reorientation of foreign policy towards alignment with the US-sponsored regimes in the Middle East. So how beneficial is it to all of the people of Sudan to be off the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism? And to what extent do you think the United States weaponizes that state sponsors of terrorism list in order to impose the economic and market relations that they want to have on Sudan?
2: Well, eventually, effectively, the U.S. Um, strong armed Sudan into the types of relationships it is it is in now with Israel for instance, through dangling this prize of lifting you off the list of state sponsors of terrorism and for most of the history of uh, of sudan 's presence on that list this was a tool to 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 sort of influence the behavior of the Sudanese uh, government but it had very little to do with terrorism <laughs> I mean terrorism was a was a label but it didn't have much to do so of course Sudan in the in the 1990s toyed with some terrorist figures and punched beyond its weight beyond its height a bit uh, in on the international scene made a few antics that were sort of you know crossed lines with with certain terrorists if you like but it was in no position to become a state sponsor of terrorism that was hugely bloated but that's the way part of um the us government policy in the region was designed around these this language around these labels it's it's also like the label military coup or or military takeover or military attempt these are ways to do politics but they don't they don't have very much to do with the actual facts on the ground.
0: And you also point out that al-Bashir attempted to sort matters out with the US, first by offering the services of his security regime to the CIA, and then by trashing his ties with Iran in favor of an alliance with Saudi Arabia and the UAE in an attempt to satisfy his new patrons, al-Bashir dispatched the military and the rapid support forces to fight Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen. So how popular is the war on Yemen with the people of Sudan? And to what degree uh, were the 2018-2019 protests and the continuing protests to this day fueled by Sudan's involvement in the war in Yemen?
2: I think to a section, to the people, one must be reminded of the fact that this is also uh, a place where you make a quick buck. Um, If you're a poor kid from the places that are undergoing famine. Uh, going to Yemen to fight is a is a job opportunity. You can turn a bit of money out of it, um, and for for part for one segment of uh, of society that, or that's an that's something that people want to achieve. So um, I think one has to have that in mind. Um, pe- uh, pe- people make a living with the ways that are open to them, and one of that. One of the ways opened in this new liberal era is is the commodification of war. And uh, that has been a way of dealing with surplus population in Sudan.
0: So Last month we were speaking with Journalist and researcher Jerome Tubiana Who, about an article he had uh, Written called Land of Thirst Climate Migration in Darfur In that piece Jerome writes The use of proxy forces Is an old Sudanese tradition Dating back to pre-colonial slave armies As militias fund and feed Themselves through pillage They are less costly than regular Forces, a strategy social anthropologist Alex DeWall, a past guest on our show Has labeled counterinsurgency. On the cheap, is the violent commercialization that you point to that keeps impoverished rural Sudanese in cyclical hunger, an outcome of counterinsurgency on the cheap?
2: Oh, very much so. Yes, very much so. I mean, this I would agree to that completely. Um, and it's this is in itself is becoming a system of it's a way of organizing labor and a way of organized production in the countryside through. Um, the militia so it's not only about fighting wars it's also about organizing extraction about controlling land about controlling trade routes about um, controlling credit uh, sources Um, and one must be reminded that most of sudan's foreign currency exchange foreign currency income comes from primary products that are produced in these impoverished countryside in places like therefore on Kurdufan, it's coming from annual, from animal wealth, from 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 sesame, from from pastoral peoples, from Arabic gum that has to be picked by hand. And this means that you always need to capture and organize labor in, 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 in very cheap ways. And one advantage of the of the militia for that type of system is that it's a cheap way of organizing work in a, uh, in a fractured uh, countryside.
0: So what explains why urban professionals in Khartoum do not see their complicity in a hegemony of a ruling bloc founded on the exploitation of the poor? Because I'm wondering if there was an alliance, if they finally understood their complicity, if there was an alliance of urban professionals and rural poor, to what extent do you think they could actually challenge military rule or is the military just too powerful?
2: I think that's the, that's the challenge of the whole situation. Um, that alliance never materialized in a in an effective way. They were early attempts in the 60s, maybe um, sort of a, a weak Maoist movement, if you like, um, that was involved in, in the, was trying to link these two worlds. But since, as you said, there is this complicity, there is a relationship of complicity, there is the essential problem that the well-being of the city relies on hyper-exploitation in the countryside. And the well-being of the city relies on war in, in the periphery. Um, for people in the cities to live better, people in the countryside have to work harder and produce more at a cheaper price, at a lower price, and get fewer returns. And that's the way surplus is organised in Sudan. And this contradiction is at the heart of the failure of Sudan's attempts at democracy, because these two worlds do not, are, are not in sync and I think one promise of 2018 and 19 is the attempt to sink these struggles in creative ways, which, as you can see, is floundering. It's not really working, but it's but that's the orientation. That's the direction of events.
0: But it, now, as you point out, the protest movement is stronger and more organized than it has been in the past. So was the coup uh, in on October 25th? How much was that coup in response to the growing legitimacy and power of the protest movement?
2: Yes, that's it's that's certainly true. I think part of the logic of the coup is the threatening nature of, of a, a linked struggle between Sudan's countryside and Sudan cities, and the threat of that happening or um, evolving. Because the way these, the way politic politics is now working, there are new entrants on the political scene, and and it's like in the fifties when the leftist movement was a new entrant. These new entrants are threatening the status quo. and and part of the logic of the military coup is to neutralize these threats, if you like.
0: And the breaking news of late, uh, since your article was written in early November, is there has been, you know, ongoing uh, change in political leadership. As Reuters reported yesterday, Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdak will quit if a political agreement he signed with the military last week is not implemented or fails to receive backing from political factions, a source close to him said. So to what extent would that agreement, if followed through upon, lead to citizen leadership and not military leadership in Sudan?
2: Oh, that's what, that would be highly speculative. So I, I'm not good at, I'm, I'm better at history than at <laughs> expecting futures. But I think I think he is under threat of being dropped by the military before he quits um, if he doesn't achieve what they brought, in him, brought him in to achieve, which is manufacture consent in the city.
0: So how possible and, is it in Sudan, or how likely is it, that they're, can or could be political leadership that is not a political partnership with the military?
2: Well, I, think, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's a, tall, it's a tall order, and it would require much more organization and, than the level of organization we have now. We have a brave protest movement, but its level of intrinsic cohesion organization will, does not allow it at the moment to control the reins of the state that that would require a, a, another leap in imagination and abilities. But as I said, I'm better at history than at futures.
0: <laughs> guesses are, even educated guesses are never all that great. Uh, finally, Reuters reports Hamdok has said he signed the agreement to stop bloodshed and preserve much needed international financial support without a military partnership. How likely is bloodshed and a loss of international financial support? Because that suggests the West, the United States is insisting upon a military partnership.
2: Yes, in, in ways it is. The US, you know, they don't phrase that in that way, but I think they do want to keep the military in the order. And they think, they, they, they think these civilians are not to be relied upon anyway. They, eventually, the interests of these Western countries is some sort of strong man that can make decisions. And if that strongman's happened to be able to manufacture consent sufficiently as to silence people who speak about democracy, that's also good. <laughs> and I, I think that's that's sort of the reasoning behind these 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 things. And um, so I, I don't I wouldn't really rely very much on these Western on the Western at least the Western diplomatic readings of events in Sudan.
0: Magdi, first I want to tell you that this is a fascinating article. This is the kind of coverage we do not get in the United States. We believe that whatever is happening in Sudan has nothing to do with the United States, and so therefore we shouldn't be covering it while we have bipartisan support for the policy that we apply to Sudan. So I really appreciate you being (coughs) on the show. But I have one last question for you. We've been speaking with Magdi El-Jazouli, who wrote the Spectre Journal article, Counter-Revolution in Sudan, a History of Military Coups and." mass struggle, and everybody should go read this article because it finally reveals to, it can at least reveal to the public here in the United States, our role in what is taking place in Sudan. I have one last question for you, Magdi, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How much do the Sudanese people from the very beginning of independent Sudan feel that they are and have always been controlled by the United States?
2: I don't think that's an awareness that many Sudanese people have. Um, not many of them would be aware or conscious of the, the, the level of uh, U.S. involvement and how deep that involvement in their daily life is. They probably are not that much aware of it
0: no. So what could you do to raise that awareness?
2: I think I think we the the the, you first you need to clarify what that involvement really is. And part of it, for instance, when when the nineteen fifties communists talk about USAID and its repercussions, there was a popular movement opposed to USAID because it was explained. And most of these things get lost in some sort of ideological mystification. And of course, you know the US is a culturally powerful country. It exports movies and films and song and cinema and public ideas about the world. And it doesn't only export weapons, it also exports the the mindset that would make you buy those weapons. And I think that's what you need to counter. And learning how to make a good function. A good functioning radio station would also be useful. So we might send some people to learn how to do radio.
0: All right. Well, if uh, you have an opening in Sudan, I will take it immediately. Magdi, I really <laughs> appreciate it. This is a fascinating article. You can count on us annoying you for the rest of your life to get you to be back on the show because this is very enlightening. I really appreciate you being on the show and enjoy the rest of your week.
2: Thank you very much. That was lovely. I love being on your show. Thank you very much. All right. Thank oh, you, God. Magdi.
0: <laughs> Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And if what you just heard from Magdi El jazouli about the U.S. role, the West role, and the divides in history of uh, military coups in Sudan, if that enlightened you in any way or made you realize this is hell, please go to thisishell.com. And show your support by clicking on support. Jess, what is this week's question from hell? And please tell our listening audience, give us some more of the answers that we're getting from them.
1: This week's question from hell is, what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street?
0: You know, I only find bad weed on the street. You never find good weed on the
1: street. Yeah, I found weed on the street. Has
0: it ever been good? No. No? No. It was
1: good. (laughs) But it's, I mean, it's still great. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I threw you off. (laughs) Eat eat Farts says, a dirty old rubber dildo sitting straight up in a gutter. I picked it up with some napkins and brought it home. Uh, friends and I tied it to a rope and would fling it as high into the air as we could and see how close we'd get it would get on its way down. Ended up in a neighbor's yard lost forever. <laughs> Good God.
0: Eat Fart 69. Good yeah. what what are you up to? <laughs> All right.
1: Um Joel G says, a wedding dress in flowers. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> um White Trash Tom says, anarchism. (laughs) (laughs) What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? Um, Jack, a dead pigeon. This is the question from hell, after all. Okay. Um, Tim S., cash. And (laughs) Anthony S., a smelly suitcase.
0: I really like that Eat Fart 69 dildo story. And uh, Joel G., finding a wedding dress (laughs) and flowers on the street. I'm really curious, what led up to that? Was it a uh, very passionate honeymoon, or was it... Eh, I'm not going to go through With this after all Keeping it real Real deep in debt Since 1996 This is hell And if you want to help us Climb out of that debt You can subscribe to our Patreon podcast At patreon.com Slash this is hell Become a subscriber To this is hell On Patreon And get exclusive access To our weekly Patreon podcast Which streams live Every Friday Including tomorrow And is podcast shortly after At the same place Patreon.com Slash this is hell Yesterday on this is hell We shared a message We got from a listener By the name of Sam Sam asked us What anesthetic you against the terror of ex- existence In the post-industrial Climate emergency, neo-feudal Billionaire playground, meat grinder Economy, and I mentioned all the Ways in which I anesthetize myself Caffeine in the morning, smoking weed shortly after The show, and later in the evening Drinking, like, likely far too Many beers, and those are all Currently off-limits to me due to Lingering effects from bronchitis And having that veil of inebriation Lifted from my gaze over the last Couple of days which has been awful As well as Sam posing this very insightful Question it's allowed me to Reflect on how I do induce a loss of Pain that the hellish stories we cover Should cause my psyche When confronted with reality beyond The corporate media manufactured Fantasies that distract us from what Is really happening in and to Our world and having to do it every day To do a show like this is hell How can one keep it together without completely Losing it well Sam and everyone else who is interested? I will be contemplating and explaining how on tomorrow how that happens on tomorrow's Patreon podcast happening at our usual time, Friday at ten a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell. By the way, did you know drinking coffee aggravates bronchitis? I did not, and I bet drinking Collectivo coffee really aggravates. Well, everyone, especially. Listener Alan and all the workers fighting for a union at Colectivo Coffee. And as we had a discussion on today's show concerning Sudan, we thought it would be great to share an interview we did with writer and researcher Alex DeWall back in October or February of 2008. Uh, I mentioned Alex DeWall during our conversation With Magdi So we are going to be playing an interview we did with uh, Alex Back in February 2008 Right after he had posted the article Making Sense of Chad Which was also posted at the website African Arguments where you can find Some of Magdi's writing as well But if you want to hear how I anesthetize myself uh, From the what we cover here on This Is Hell, and for that matter, how I don't anesthetize myself, and a 2008 conversation on Chad that was a whole has a whole lot to do with what was happening in Sudan and Darfur. Subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Friday and is podcast shortly after at the same time. Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hal following the moment of truth. I have some disturbing news about homicides in Chicago and the way the disturbing local news covered the disturbing news, and I'll be sharing that with Jeffy in just a few moments. Jess, I know you have Hefe on the line.
3: the durian witches welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink there are a lot of unsturdy judgments laymen have come to about science and medicine it seems the more we probe and discover about the universe the more fodder amateurs have to build mistaken beliefs on and the more we probe mistaken beliefs the more certain we become that what we call the nature of reality reflects not aspects of the universe so much as our prejudices. Prejudices about social stratification and the way society ought to be. Being a layman myself, and an especially dilettantish layman to boot, I exhibit these prejudices as much as, if not more than, anyone. There's an efficiency model of evolution where a Darwinist mechanism weeds out losers within a generation or two, rapidly leaving a species better adapted to be its best self without being weighed down by feeble kin. This model pairs nicely with an uber-capitalist view of winner-takes-all, losers-weepers. It also feeds the neo-Nazis and other eugenics enthusiasts' Nietzschean argument that the weak masses of humanity have polluted our species. They have manipulated collective morality, fooling the strong into wasting time and resources taking care of them, whereas in some putative state of nature they would have been left to die for the good of posterity. That state of nature exists in some parallel universe where humans are not communal animals with an innate impulse to care for each other. It's a fantasy where humans are lonely gatherers competing in an austere landscape for limited resources. Research lately indicates that beings caring for less self-sufficient members of their own species is a rule rather than an exception. Trees in a forest sense each other's needs through a mycological nerve network and respond to the distress of others by redirecting nutrient resources and water their way. Lizards form bonds of affection. Vampire bats have been observed Sharing blood with needy vampire bats nearby, even those outside their kinship circles. Nature, as the realm of the rugged individualist, is a pathological rationalization for maladaptive, greedy, cruel treatment of others. It is not somehow more real than the instinct for compassion and mutual aid. On an only slightly related topic, I recently heard someone ascribe the discovery and cultural adoption of hideous smelling foods, in particular the famously reeking South Asian durian fruit, to severe hunger. Remember, for most of human existence we were hungry, trying to get calories out of everything no matter how unlikely or awful. I objected, based on my own recreational reading and fallible thinking. And let me explain my objection further than I did during the actual discussion. How does efficient evolution, after 600 million years, come up with a pinnacle of the survival of the fittest process so out of whack with its environment that it's always on the brink of starvation? But putting that perhaps straw man argument aside... I don't think we were constantly desperate for calories. And more importantly, I don't believe hunger was the motivator for culinary discovery. I believe tribal humans formed sophisticated, connected communities early in human existence. I'm going to posit 80,000 years ago because it sounds nice to me and makes a bit of sense as possibly the latest moment for long distance idea and object transmission to come about long distance transmission here means ideas and objects transported from the group of people you saw every day through intervening groups in a chain to another group of people you would never meet evidence of trade and early migration bears out this wishful thinking and yes We migrated to find better land, but better may have been better not because it contained more food, but because vain, self-important warlords with coercive cadres weren't in control. There's a lot of evidence that large, organized populations would separate themselves from those self-appointed supermen. Archaeological explorations of many proto-agrarian municipalities show that they tended to relegate historic warrior subcultures to territories outside their civic limits, you know, away from where people were getting on with their lives, creating the bulk of civilization, before the mighty, that is, the mighty selfish, the egocentric glory addicts, learned how to make the law protect their psychopathic hoarding behavior. But even before that, Even before we were technically taxonomically human, we were familiar with fermentation. Animals, from birds to apes, eat fermented berries for the purpose of enjoying the alcoholic buzz. And if experience with disease and death was common, I think the next most common experience was rot. Things were rotting all around you, fruit and vegetables. Fermentation and its various stinks were everywhere and interesting. We were drunk before we were linguistic. And we were also adept at learning to select foods and drinks long past their sell-by date. We learned to let our bread dough ferment. We even stole milk from other animals and learned to let that ferment. Rather than being constantly hungry for most of human existence, which may have been the case for the first 100,000 years, I believe that for the next 100,000, we were drunk and ate a wide variety of stuff. All this taken into account, I would like to posit a different origin story for discovering the edibility of the durian fruit. In prehistoric times, there existed a land we know today as Borneo, whither a prehistoried drunken people had once sailed on a dare from the shores of some ancient mainland. Most advances around this time were made on a dare, but especially culinary ones. People would point at a lump of stinking, rotten vegetable matter and say, I dare you to eat that. What started to arise among humans was a class of wizardly daredevils who would walk up to others in the kinship group and say, hey, oyuk Mazit, I buried this sealed pot weeks ago. Inside is an egg enveloped in a tea and lye paste. You dare me to eat that egg? And Mazit, who was no fool, said, All right, but if you die, I get to make all your husbands my sex slaves. The deal was struck, the pot was cracked open, the egg was retrieved and eaten, some cramps were felt, but on the whole, the presentation was a success. These witches and warlocks survived by the prestige they earned, daring to eat all manner of repulsive or impossible things, and since they and their audiences were always drunk, the demonstrations never failed to astound and amuse, and many surprising foods were thus introduced into the human diet, including fermented horse milk, cave-aged blue cheese, søstrming, fermented skatewing, basturma, stinky tofu, pickled cud, and a selection of chinese rotten plum drinks and so it was with the durian these newly arrived Bornean colonists were casually sniffing each other's butts one day when they smelled a vomit slash sulfur slash rotten onion fragrance on the breeze wafting from the jungle they traced it to some large hard-shelled spiky looking things stinking of civet glands and turd gas most of the cowards turned away from the fruits and hastily went to throw up But in a trice, the official witch of the colony had cracked one open and enjoyed a handful of the yellow custardy pulp. And that's how people started eating things people thought people shouldn't eat. It's the same principle that gave us bungee jumping, bullfighting, bobsledding, cliff diving and adolescent alcohol poisoning. This has been an educational moment of truth.
0: I like how they've changed the name from bobsledding to just bobsleigh competition. Go figure. You didn't
3: let me say good day, but I don't care
0: because uh, I like talking to you. Sorry. i sorry. <laughs> I paused too long for yes, the good you, day. you did. I was sorry. Hey, I got to tell you something, Jeff. On Monday, yes. local TV news reported that Chicago has had 1,009 homicides so far in 2021. Keeping in mind these numbers can easily be fudged, and have been, by the Chicago Police Department, despite the media never challenging them. When they Mm -hmm. want it to look like homicides are down, they classify them as unknown death cases or something like that. When they want it to look like murders are up, those cases suddenly become homicides. At least that's how it was described to me by a relative of a homicide detective, and then corroborated by a police officer. But here's the disturbing part of the local TV news (laughs) report. Okay, keep in mind, 1,009 homicides. They reported... 81% 81% of homicides were of African Americans, and 15% of, were of uh, Hispanic victims. That means approximately 810 African American victims, 150 Hispanic victims, leaving 4% or around 50 murders of anyone who is not African American or Hispanic, which includes all whites and those considered to be in the immensely vague group of Asian Americans. So the headline should have oh over a thousand people have been murdered in Chicago this year, but only fifty white or Asian Americans have been victims of homicide. Oh my god! And which how is many far were... more frightening. That
3: is insane. How many were committed by cops?
0: Oh, I guess they don't classify those as homicides. No, those are unknown death cases. Oh, <laughs> can you believe oh, that? You wonder. That is insane. You wonder why. Uh, you you tell me that there isn't white privilege. You tell me there isn't white privilege. Why is it well, that I feel so safe when I'm walking on the street and I can tell that people who are not as white as I am and I'm pretty freaking white uh, you know, I don't feel that concerned.
3: Well, Chuck I mean, you got it. What explains this is how rotten brown and black people are. They're always getting into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) They they can't, a bullet comes at them. They can't get out of the way. They're
0: too lazy to get out of the way of bullets, for one thing. Wow. Uh, I forgot that you're taking in money from the fraternal order of police lately.
3: Oh, not just that, the Heritage Foundation, <laughs> I think I get some from uh, Ben Shapiro himself to not mention that he he can't get his wife wet.
0: Yeah, and you were on the ground floor of uh, ma- the Moral Majority too, I forgot all about that. You made a lot of Oh money. yeah. Oh.
3: You know, there was a lot of good stuff on the ground floor. They
0: <laughs> they took,
3: they thought, they oh, we'll take these fancy lamps up to the top floor, but they left so much stuff. I don't know, Great books <laughs> Jenny, All kinds of things What? On that note Yes
0: Stay beautiful Good day Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomi people I stepped all over them This is hell Jess please remind our listening audience What is this week's question from hell And tell us how our listeners have responded
1: <laughs> We already did that
0: you don't
1: have any more? Um, no, I don't have any more on Twitter. That was everything. All
0: right, just checking. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the ones I liked the most were Eat Fart 69s dildo story, Joel G. and his wedding dress and flowers story, which is a real leading can candidate right now. Uh, I would say Bob's saying, while living in the Congo, I found a Lupinban pit pick a stone knife from the middle stone age 200,000 to 100,000 years ago lying in the road but I think that would be endorsing colonialism and cultural appropriation and taking things away from ancient civilizations so I don't want to do that. Uh, Simon's answer of myself, which is what he found lying on the street, which is a good answer. Dank's response of my next girlfriend, which is disturbing. Lisa replying most of my furniture. And of course, Pete saying your mom. So let me see, which one do I think is my favorite? I'm going to go with. Joel G. saying a wedding dress and flowers because it leads to far more questions than I have and uh, it's just a bizarre story and I think if you wrote a short story where the ending is somebody finding a wedding dress and flowers on the street uh, who knows, maybe you'll win a Hopwood Award so congratulations to Joel G. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support and we'll get it in the mail to you Post haste My, haste, my answer to this week's question well, What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street And keeping in mind I'm legally blind So finding stuff on the street is a bit more challenging I found lying on the street A large button That had the words I am not A utility employee In both English and Spanish Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell I know it's a weird button to find on the street And why would somebody be wearing a button that says I'm not a utility employee Well in the past if people were trying to sell you fake utilities stuff Where they would be able to take money from you and not actually provide uh, utilities They would have to have those people from those different companies Wearing these kind of gigantic buttons because uh, you know trade concerns here in the city They don't have to do that anymore Don't worry uh, so, Jess, what was the best thing you ever found lying on the street?
1: Uh, other than bad weed, I don't think I can think That's of That's about
0: up. it, bad <laughs> weed. Uh, so, do we have anybody scheduled to be on the show next week?
1: Yes. Um, on Monday, um, I won't be here, but we'll be we'll be speaking <laughs> with um, Martin Billheimer on his book, Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams and Specters Over the Gilded Age.
0: Well, it won't be the starting of a week without you, Jess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tuesday, nobody yet, but what about Wednesday? Tuesday,
1: nobody. Wednesday... Um, We'll be speaking with journalist Tony Briscoe on his ProPublica article. Uh, Conservationists see rare nature sanctuaries. Black farmers see a legacy brought out from under them. And a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin.
0: And uh, please stay in contact with us, Jess, and send us uh, guest suggestions. You've had some in the past, and I really want to hear from you in the future as far as who we should have on the show. I would really appreciate it. So we start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure. And this week's Hangover Cure is a carvery or restaurant that serves a buffet including roasted meat. Thanks to this week's guests including Neil Vallelli, author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. Thanks to yesterday's guest... Farmer C.E., who wrote the new inquiry article, Farming in the Shadow of the Shadow State, Growing Food and Getting Free in a World Built for Agricultural Capitalism. And thanks to today's guest, Magdi El-Jazuli, who wrote the Spectre Journal article, Counter-Revolution in Sudan, A History of Military Coups and Mass Struggle. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing. Jess, do you want to share any final thoughts you may have had on working here on This Is Hell?
1: I'm going to miss it. I'll I'll keep in touch. Absolutely. And I'll be in Chicago. So I'll come by the bar.
0: That's sweet. Yeah. Come by when we're hanging out. I'll tell you when next time we'll be doing that. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Alex Jerry for running the board this week, as well as to Jess Lipka. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Rinaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Hummison, just because. Talk to you tomorrow. Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be answering listener Sam's question as to how I anesthetize myself from the hell that surrounds us and the hell that we report on every week. We'll also be sharing a February 2008 conversation with Alex DeWall, who had just posted an article uh, titled Making Sense of Sudan, which, uh, Making Sense of Chad, which has a lot to do with today's subject of neighboring Sudan and Darfur, and uh, Magdi agreed with uh, Alex's analysis. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words everybody's stupid
1: my demon is on my butt no. uh, <laughs> no. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller no. and my demon tries to knock me down
3: and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride
1: thank you for listening to this is hell For more Interview Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.